Hi, everybody. We are all very full and very hungover from the holidays here at Spencer's. So we wanted to reshare another episode this week that originally ran when we were in our infancy and only our parents knew the show existed. Something that's been a huge, huge, huge wake-up call in basketball, specifically the past couple of years, is that rules can change and be tweaked and seasons can be played in bubbles and plan games can be added, and so can replacement players for anyone on your roster with COVID. This is an episode about rules, specifically one rule made in 2001 that changed basketball's aesthetic forever. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we are never defensive. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. I'm a recovering basketball writer. I'm Jordan Liggins. I'm an editor at Mojo. Haley, what are we doing today? I did a deep, deep dive on something, but before I tell you what that is, I want you to tell me what I asked you before the show, which was, what is the wildest call you've seen recently in an NBA game? Yes. So the first thing that came to my mind was February 2020, Jazz versus the Blazers. And the, the goaltending no call that would have tied the game. You know, Dame had 42 points that game. It was Rudy Gobert. Good old Rudy. Just starting off a horrible 2020 for him. <laughs> and everyone was up in arms after that because it was a missed call. Absolutely looked like it should have been a goaltender. That cost them the game potentially you know it could have went into overtime and we don't know who would have won so yeah that's the first thing that comes to mind I remember thinking how ridiculous it was the league didn't do anything about it mm -hmm. I don't know what you do in that situation if your missed call your clearly missed call like inarguable would have resulted in a tie you know because what do you do do you schedule a makeup session the next day and it's only five minutes I have no idea what you do but it felt really weird that they just didn't do anything yeah I agree it was a complete miss and really just you know started 2020 for all of us we just knew everything was going downhill really tough two <laughs> months for Rudy Gobert. real tough everyone hated him after that I am really glad you brought up a defensive call though because that's exactly what I wanted to talk about today Okay, so last week, you remember, we talked about April 12th and how it was the 20th anniversary of the NBA's Board of Governors getting rid of the illegal defense rule and adding in a couple other rules. I could not stop thinking about it after we brought it up. You know this about me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't expect anything less. You going down <laughs> a rabbit hole with research. 3 a.m., nothing better to do. That's me. <laughs> anyway... It is a legitimate thing to be looking up. This is one of the biggest basketball rule changes in history. It changed the game forever. And I wanted to see how it all went down. Some people wanted the rules to change and others really did not. And a lot of people want rules to change today. Should there be a four-point shot? Should the three-point shot somehow be changed so it doesn't affect the game so much? Where do we begin? So in 2001, the NBA was not in a good place. You know, following the year 2000, what had happened uh, was that the game began to come to a grinding halt. My name is Stu Jackson, and in 2001, I was the senior vice president 
basketball operations for the National Basketball Association. Essentially, the NBA was putting people to sleep. Scoring was down. Uh, the game had become boring. It was heavily reliant on one-on-one -on -one play and isolation. There was a lot of grabbing and holding and physical play, all of which led to the game becoming uh, very unwatchable and slow. So it would be like if Russell Westbrook was just driving through the lane every time and everyone was just bodying each other. I, I guess that would be kind of boring. Yeah, it was extremely one-on-one, -on -one, except for usually only one to two guys were even included in the possibility of being one-on-one -on, -one mm. on offense. And as a result, the pace was really slow. The scores were really low. There was no flow or fluidity to the game. It wasn't an equal opportunity sport. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to watch that NBA. Yeah, a lot of people didn't. The media was criticizing the NBA. The ratings were down. The league was doing focus groups. And finally... It got to a point where David Stern made a decision and said, we need to change. This is where the illegal defense rule comes into play. But before we get into all of that, we have to talk about it. So tell me honestly, what do you know about the illegal defense rule? Honestly... My first thought is that it was just about man-to-man. -man. Is that fair? Yeah, you're, you're close. There are a lot more technicalities. But, okay, A, woman watching basketball, like, I'm here with you. I don't want you to feel bad about the fact that you're like, uh, nobody knew. <laughs> Literally nobody knew. Everyone had trouble defining it. Okay, good. <laughs> so I will give it to you in its simplest terms. Illegal defense meant no zone defense, only man-to-man. -man. The exception was if you wanted to double team, but you could only double team a player with the ball. So you also had to be in arm's reach of the person you were defending. That basically sums it up. There is still more to it, but essentially no zone defense. That made my eye twitch because I'm like trying to <laughs> imagine this, but... I guess that's how you're taught defense. You know, you want to be arms distance away, but zone is very powerful sometimes, especially on the help side. You're going to want to run zone. So that's interesting that it's just like no zone. Since you're a basketball player, which I like bringing up as much as I can, <laughs> can you explain to people who might not know what zone is? Yeah. So instead of guarding man to man, you're guarding your zone. You're guarding your area. So any person that comes in your area, you want to make sure that you, you know, bump the cutter or you're talking to your teammates. So you're saying, okay, the top of the key is my zone. Anyone that comes in here, I'm going to guard them. No matter if it was a guard or a center, you're making sure that your zone is covered. Yeah, absolutely. You are shifting all the time. You're not assigned to a single person. So how did something that strict come into play? Okay, I'm going to put on my monocle because it is history story time. I'm by the fire. Yes. <laughs> so in January 1947, halfway through the NBA's first season, well, technically, if you count the three years before the merger, when it was called the Basketball Association of America, zone defense was banned. So not even a full season. And they were like, we don't want any part of this. In fact, the NBA historical website says it was outlawed, which I love because it's very dramatic wording. 
And when I was reading about this, the late Dr. Jack Ramsey, who was a very famous coach and who we'll talk about more in a minute, once wrote that the NBA banned zone defense because it was boring. So I am sending you this quote now. Can you read this? This is Jack Ramsey talking about the first season of the NBA or the BAA when he watched a game where they were playing zone. Okay, quote. I went to see the Ironmen play against the old Philadelphia Warriors, and their defense was so bad, it was ludicrous. The league only banned the zone because it was bad, not because it was difficult for teams to play against. No one could confidently say what exactly illegal defense was. I mean, Stu was the senior vice president of basketball operations, and he was still iffy. I've tried to put it out of my mind, but... Basically, it, you know, the, the court itself was broken down into quadrants. And, you know, you as a defensive player. You I'm just going to stop him here because he does give a very comprehensive, very technical and very complicated answer. But just know that this is where we ended up after all of that. Side of the floor. Most ridiculous thing ever devised in my mind. How ridiculous. Is that? But that was the problem. I mean, the answer takes three minutes to give. So if you're asking what illegal defense is and the answer takes forever, you have to remember refs are having to decide this in a second or two seconds on the court in the middle of all this action. So in addition to being extremely confusing and convoluted, it also created a ton of inconsistent calls, which is, you know, NBA fans favorite thing. It kind of reminds me of the NFL catch rule, right? Yeah. The refs have to make that in a half second on the field while, you know, we're watching at home and we can clearly see what was a catch and what wasn't. It's really hard to do in the moment. The refs call that differently, which is the exact same thing that went on here. And it was not only fans who are confused and coaches and players, but it was very much the refs. And Stu told me about that because part of his job was being in charge of the officials and evaluating the officials. So they would come to him when they had problems or confusion. And that was very often. No, only every day. It was pretty much a weekly issue. Uh, with certain officials, and not the same ones, at various times, they would miss these illegal defensive calls because they didn't completely understand the guidelines totally. I swear some of the officials were making calls just because, you know, there was movement, but it really wasn't an illegal defensive guideline violation. The bottom line was it yielded just an inconsistency with the way the rule was called. It was difficult. It was bizarre. It feels like this could be easily manipulated by coaches, too, especially if everyone isn't agreeing on what qualifies, right? Yeah, because coaches want to win. But others had embraced isolation, especially if they had a really good ISO player, to the point of having rosters that had very different, hmm, let's call them different talents. You started to see teams signing players who were, you know, great physical athletes, but not necessarily really good basketball players. I mean, if you only needed two or three people on offense, then those other two or three people, what you wanted was the best possible defensive person you could find, even if uh, he maybe didn't have a lot of basketball skills. I know that voice. Yes. Russ talked to us for our first reported piece about Magic Johnson and the 1992 All-Star Game. I'm Russ Granick. 
In 2001, I was the NBA's deputy commissioner and chief operating officer, basically responsible for running all of the day-to-day -day operations of the NBA. So I'm curious, you know, Russ was second in command to David Stern. Could he explain the illegal defense rule? Yeah, I'll let him tell you himself. <laughs> no, I would say that I, I could never have uh, described the illegal defense rules uh, to anyone. Russ was right next to David Stern as Stern was growing uneasy about the state of the game. I mean, it was getting extreme, like Russ and Stu have said. And if you're a coach, you don't care about the aesthetics. You care about winning. So if you know that a defender has to stay glued to your player, you're going to get creative. We had situations where they would just send two or three players into the corner. And, and so two or three defenders would have to be in the vicinity there based on the legal defense rules. Uh, and that, that I'm not exaggerating. That kind of thing was, was starting to happen. Okay, well, that sounds horrible. <laughs> I can see why they wanted to make a change. Yeah, and because it's something that's this big a part of the game, I mean, defense is literally half of it, it's extremely difficult to bring something like that to a vote. But this is how that happens. So there's the NBA's Board of Governors. That's essentially all the owners, and they are the ones who vote on things like this. I feel like I should be singing this to you so it really sticks, like how a bill turns into a law. Do you remember that video? Yes. I would love that. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. So basically, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. Before taking it to the Board of Governors, the NBA had to have a plan. Sure, David and I ended up sitting around and saying, well, why don't we form a committee and put the, the best people we can on it? And the best person to chair it among the owners would be Jerry Colangelo. And let's see what they come up with. Wait, why would Jerry Colangelo be the best person for this? Russ gave me a couple of reasons. When the Suns hired Jerry in 1968, he was the youngest general manager in all professional sports, not even just NBA. He also had a lot of front office experience, and at that point, in 2001, he was actually the Suns' owner. Plus, he technically played in the NBA, although, as Russ says it... He got drafted in the NBA, but that was when we had, like, 10 rounds. <laughs> That's tough. So he had essentially lived out almost every experience a person could in the NBA. And he and his son ended up doing a little more with the 76ers. Uh, kids, Google that at home. We'll get into that another day. <laughs> so Jerry Galangelo heads the committee. Who else is on it? Well, Russ and Stu Jackson, who we met earlier. Jack Ramsey, who we referenced earlier. Your Lakers legend. Jerry West. Theo Ratliff. Bob Lanier. Ed Rush who was the supervisor of officials, Wayne Embry, and someone else who had been in the league office for 14 and a half years, but who had just switched over in 2001 to the other side. My name is Rod Thorne, and in 2001, I was the president of the New Jersey Nets. So they all meet in Phoenix, Arizona, because, you know, Jerry Colangelo. Mm -hmm. uh, going into the meeting, there was the sense that the league needed a change. And let's make sure that the changes we make are the right ones. So everyone on the committee came prepared with ideas for potential fixes. But you have to remember, Jordan, what they were suggesting to do 
getting rid of illegal defense, it was going to be revolutionary no matter what. It was going to totally change the game. So when it came up, which it immediately came up as the biggest problem, the next question was, okay, so how do we make coaches and players less concerned? Because a lot of them were really upset with the fact that anyone was even proposing getting rid of this rule. Yeah, and it totally makes sense. You know, they're probably thinking, are we going to still be winning? Is the game going to completely change? Low scoring? I understand their concerns. <laughs> yeah, especially like you said, if they're already winning, you don't want to change anything up. And another huge concern that they had was people watch this because they like ISO players. These are the most popular players in the league. But, I mean, no shit. They're the ones who are scoring. So <laughs> that makes total sense. But the other thing was big men were really concerned. Shaq spoke out about this. He had this quote that basically said people were asking him what he thought about the rule change. And he said, quote, stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> if only Candace Parker were around to explain why it wouldn't stink. But what his concern was... He was worried that if you didn't have to stick to your man, what's stopping anyone from bringing three, four defenders clogging the paint and not letting him get any touches? So what this committee had to avoid was putting a bunch of big men standing under the basket and stopping up the lane. Now, Jordan, think about the modern game. If you don't have to cling to your man anymore, how will they stop exactly that concern? Oh, is this the defensive three-second violation? Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. A defender can't spend more than three seconds in the paint if he's not actively guarding another player. Who came up with that rule? I'm curious. It is a really wonderful story. You know, oftentimes, and God rest his soul, David Stern took credit for that himself, but he didn't come up with the idea. It was Dr. Jack Ramsey. I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday because I had an epiphany. You ever have one of those moments when a product comes out or, you know, you see something new and you say, well, why didn't I think of that? That's how I felt when Dr. Ramsey said, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we just make them get out of the lane after three seconds? And he said, we'll call it defensive three seconds. And at that moment, I went, I, I said to myself, wow, okay, that's innovative. And while I probably had a look of surprise on my face, everyone else in the room also, they were a little bit more stoic than I was. I know they were thinking, boy, that's a great idea. This just reminds me that basketball is a game <laughs> and you could just make up rules as you go just like any other game if you're just playing a game in your backyard and you just say new rule we're all gonna play it this way now like that's exactly what this reminded me of but it was a good idea because now people can drive the lane too you know it wasn't so clogged up and there's just way more movement so i completely agree this was a great idea but did everyone else agree immediately, though? Did everyone think it was a good idea? Because it was such a huge change, Stu said that it wasn't immediate. But, okay, so obviously you've seen inside the NBA on TNT when <laughs> Kenny Smith runs to the big screen to break down a play, right? Yes, yeah. Okay, I want you to picture that because that's exactly what happened. We had an old, uh, an easel and uh, 
white tablet there, you know, and, and so Dr. Jack was up drawn and he was showing how a defender, you know, used an X in the middle lane and how they would get out of the lane and they could come back into the lane. And some people say, well, that's really silly. The game's not taught like that defensively. And we all agree that it wasn't taught like that defensively, but we also all agreed that if we were going to keep the lane open, we had to do a little bit something different. And that was the solution. And fortunately, coming out of that meeting, there was consensus that, hey, that was going to be one of the rule changes as part of our package, along with getting rid of the illegal defensive guidelines. They felt like it was a good compromise for the coaches and players who didn't want the rules to change because they were nervous about their centers and ISO players being overwhelmed in the paint. And the suits loved it too. That David and I in particular, you know, being two lawyers, really just fell in love with the idea instantly because it seemed to have some of what we were always trying to prevent was just packing in the lane with, with giant guys. Uh, and it was simple. You know, you could, you could explain it. You could write it down. Lawyers always love something that's easy to interpret. So they added more than getting rid of illegal defense and the newly proposed defensive three-second violation. The final package was this. No more illegal defense, the defensive three-second violation, and they wanted to shorten the 10 seconds a team was allowed before bringing the ball past midcourt to eight seconds because they were thinking this will speed up pace and maybe this will even encourage some full-court pressing, but that did not pan out. The last thing was redefining incidental contact, hand-checking, to cut down on touch fouls, basically all geared towards speeding the game up. Did it pass? So the Board of Governors meeting was in New York. At the St. Regis Hotel. Rod Thorne told me that usually these meetings are all about finances and contracts and broadcast deals. You know, if you're a small market team, how can we how can we get more money? If you're a big market team, how can we keep what we have? But this was an exception. For once, the owners are talking about basketball. So Stu is giving this PowerPoint presentation at the podium and all the owners are sitting in a U-shape facing him, and they are entranced. They were locked in. There's nobody getting up going to the bathroom. Okay? There's nobody having side conversations. But the thing was, it wasn't as cinematic as I'm selling it. This wasn't the first time the owners were hearing about this. They'd been provided the information beforehand. They'd probably talked to their coaches or basketball people about it. And what Stu, Russ, and Rod told me was that David Stern was known to caucus beforehand. So David Stern essentially knew what the vote was going to be ahead of time. So did Stern get up and speak anyway? or Oh, he spoke. But according to Stu, he never got up to speak. David, he doesn't stand up to give presentations. We all stand up to give presentations. He sits there in front of his microphone as he did that day, and just started to reemphasize the need for this rule change. Some days in the room, I almost felt like the Board of Governors worked for David. So the vote passed, 22 and 6, with one abstention, probably just like David Stern knew it would. Yeah, and look, I'm 27. I can't imagine the game without these rule changes. Like, I don't even remember what it was before. Well, absolutely. And what I think about is that 19-year-olds in the league weren't even born when this was passed. Oh, my gosh. 
That's wild to think about. I know. They would have never known any kind of different game. It really is basketball as we know it. Even going into youth sports, this is what you're taught already. Defensive three seconds, and it's, it's kind of integrated into just the game itself. But what I'm wondering, all those concerns that we talked about beforehand that the players and coaches had, did any of those come true or was everyone just happy-go-lucky after? Well, I have a surprise for you. I talked to our former coworker, our friend, and just a genius in general, Zach Cram, and he helped me break it down. Zach Cram, after the break. Okay, so Jordan, if I asked you who you'd trust more than anyone to confirm, deny, or spot a statistical trend in sports, who would it be? I mean, it's so obvious. My name is Zach Cram. I am a staff writer at The Ringer. So I asked Zach about the immediate effect and the long-term effect. The biggest concern from detractors was that unleashing any defense would ruin scoring completely. The rules did not change things immediately, and some defenses actually pounced with the new rules. It took a while for offenses to adjust. One of my favorite pastimes is reviewing box scores from Pistons playoff games of that era, just because we saw scores like 69-65 against the Pacers and 66-64 against the Celtics and 78-56 against the Nets. And to be clear, these are full game scores, not halftime scores like they would be now. So the Pistons won the 2004 title with an incredible defense. But then that next season, there was another new tweak in addition to the 2001 rules changes where they put tighter restrictions on hand checking. And that really opened up the offensive sport. I found a New York Times piece from 2005. And in the headline, it said, four years later, NBA sees the point. So they had this goal and it took them a few years and another little tweak. And then they finally got it to work. And obviously, 15 years later, we have now seen the three-point revolution and offenses are scoring at a more efficient rate than they ever have before. So I think it took a little bit of time, but over the years, it's been proved that even with zone defense and more aggressive help defense, they're not slowing down these NBA offenses. And what we see today when we do see zone implemented, it's always a hybrid. Think about Tom Thibodeau's strong side defense. We're getting kind of inside baseball now, but the point is zone defense didn't destroy anything. It didn't even really take over. In fact, the possibility of zone defense didn't even destroy anything. It's funny to think now from what we know that any coach or player opposed this from the beginning. Like they were worried that the game was going to be slow and low scoring when in fact, like before 2001, the game was so low scoring. They needed a Zach Cram, just like we all do. I was going to say, everybody needs a Zach Cram. (laughs) He actually got into how ridiculous that fear was, considering it was already staring them in the face. Well, if you look just at league-wide pace, for instance, that had already slowed tremendously in the late 90s. At the time these rule changes were implemented, the three slowest seasons ever were 1997, 1998, and 1999. And also, those were the lowest scoring seasons since the invention of the shot clock. 1999, which was a strange year because it was the shortened lockout season, and then 2001. That's why they put in these rules in the first place. So while scoring didn't immediately leap, it's not like it fell right away either because it was already 
starting from such a low point. I mean, again, I do understand coaches not wanting to take away what works for them, but it was so much ISO before. Yeah, but it's not like the ISO player is completely gone. Look at James Harden. He's won an MVP. He's still a huge ISO player, but he can also shoot threes and he's a great passer. So I guess the biggest difference to me is that other people are getting more involved before the ball gets into the paint. Yeah, exactly. Look, we are not in the same place that Russ Granick was telling me about. Three players huddled in the corner, two players who can drive inside, only one's doing it every possession. Zach said that, yes, these individualistic play types have dwindled, but not in a way that's hurt offenses. Isos and post-ups have been replaced by many, many, many more pick and rolls, which tie more players into the offensive action. And so we still see people getting to the rim. They're just getting to the basket differently. They're involving more players in the action than just isolations or post-ups where you have one offensive player and one defensive player battling and then eight other guys standing around. And people need to have actual basketball skills to contribute to an offense. Before, if you think about it, you're playing man-to-man, you have no choice but to respect a shooter on the perimeter. Or I should say actually just to respect a player on the perimeter. The point is he didn't have to be a shooter. Once you eliminate man-to-man being mandatory, that's no longer true. So the three-point shot is basically the solution. You have to have shooters to space the floor. You have to have someone who's good enough that a defender is going to cling to them. I think we can't stress enough, and it's so obvious, too, of how this really changed the game for three-point shooting and the boom of the three-pointer and the exciting games that we watch and the Steph Curry's, like, this was a part of that, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, and that's the conclusion over time that most people have taken from this. What was the biggest change that came in the league from getting rid of illegal defense three-point shooting and something that rod and russ talked to me about was that it also allowed for players who had different skill sets but smaller size to be in the nba let's say you're a really good shooter but you're really small and you can't afford to be bodied by these huge defenders This gives you an opportunity because if you need people who can participate in offense, you're no longer just creating a roster of two guys who can drive inside and a bunch of bullies. So this really opened up the game for other people to play as well. I think for me, the biggest takeaway too is that things can change and things can improve and change can lead to improvement. Everybody is very scared of change. This is kind of off the court, but I want to bring up the play-in game, which is now, this year, the play-in tournament. Everybody loves this concept. You loved the play-in game. Mm -hmm. I loved the play-in game. I'm excited about it this year. It's so fun. I mean, everybody except Mark Cuban, but still. The point is, change can be good. And so while everyone's biggest takeaway is this three-point revolution, which is totally legitimate, I mean, it's completely shifted the game, the qualifications to play, the center position, which technically was a concern, but I think other things factored into that, like the other hand-checking amendment in 2004, which, hey, maybe in a future episode we will get to that one as well. (laughs) It proved that change can be successful. I mean, don't you love watching the game today? Yes, it's so much more fun. 
And like you said, with the playing game, you have to make changes. And like I said earlier, this is a game. We need to be able to say like, what is going to make it more fun for everybody, everyone playing it, everyone watching it. And so the flexibility has to be there. Can I bring up something ironic that I found when I was doing my research? In 2001, Rockets coach Rudy Tomjanovich was opposed to changing the illegal defense rule in part because he thought people weren't going to want to watch anymore because they loved ISO so much. That's what the fans wanted. And he said, quote, there are guys now who do things we never dreamed about. I think we've been so desensitized by all the amazing plays that we forgot that's what people come to see, which is hilarious because now (laughs) what are you coming to see? You're coming to see Steph Curry. You're coming to see James Harden. So it's just like things can change for the better. Another ironic thing is that we're having this conversation. We're saying that the game is so fun now, but other people, they think all that improvement, you know, ratings are still down and the game is not fun to watch, which I don't understand. People are obsessed with talking about ratings. (sighs) Here's the thing. I know. I hate it too. I hate that we even said the word ratings on this podcast. I know. Gross. When I talked to Stu, Rod, and Russ, they all brought up how many threes are being taken now because that's a huge complaint that the game is not fun to watch anymore. It's all threes. And the question is, is that the next thing people will try to change? Will they add in a four-point shot? Will they limit where the three-point shot can be taken? And something Rod Thorne said really stuck with me. No matter what rules you put in, teams are going to go up to the limit of what they can do, and then they're going to cross that line. And then if you don't keep that limit where it is, you got a new limit. That's what teams do. Well, we love change here. We are along for the ride. Wherever the wind blows and the NBA goes, we'll be right there. And that's our show. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out the last narrative episode we did with contributor Katie Heindel on what it's really like to be traded. And please keep giving us your basketball opinions and pouring your heart out on our voicemail at 502-874-4453 or send us an email at spinsters at bluewirepods.com to be featured on the show. This episode of Spinsters was written, recorded, and hosted by me and Jordan Liggins. Our editor is Cody Nelson with production by Cody, Alex Ford, Isabel Jocelyn, and Jordan. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yells, and me. Hi, this is Will from from Brooklyn. Um, I My confession is that I haven't had a conversation all week that hasn't revolved around Jamal Murray or... Um, or I haven't been thinking about Jamal Murray, and I just want him to want him to get better and want him to feel good, and I'm makes me very sad. Um, thank you for listening.